0: Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, we thank you for the way that you have blessed us physically, materially. We thank you for the way that you have blessed us with this church family here. And Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that he made. Father, we thank you for the love that motivated that sacrifice. And Father, we are humbled and in awe by the love that you have for us, that you would send your son, that he would take on the sins of the world, and, Father, that he would conquer death and he would conquer sin and he would conquer darkness for us because of the love that he has for us. Father, help us to take that light and shine it to the world that's around us so they, too, can come to know you and your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name, Jesus, who is the Christ, that we pray. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been moving through God's story in the Old Testament. And as we've done that, we've seen certain themes that kind of continually repeated by God's people and by God over the centuries. Themes like moving away from God and then coming back to God. Themes like committing apostasy, followed by God's discipline, and then repentance, followed by God's pardon. And we've seen the theme of captivity and enslavement, followed by God's liberation from enslavement. And as we insert ourselves into God's story, we see that those themes are accurate and powerful metaphors for the things that we continue to do in our lives, the things that we continue to do to ourselves. We see in our lives our tendency to wander away from God, only to have him welcome us back to him. And we see in those stories our tendency to rebel against God and then be disciplined by him and then find that our repentance always brings God's pardon to us. And we've all witnessed God actively working to free us from our captivity and our enslavement to sin. We see our stories in God's story when we don't just look at the Bible, but when we actually stand within the story, make that story our story. And when we do stand in God's story and when we do make it our own, it changes our perspective. Things look different. No longer do we search for our mission in life, but instead we recognize that God is calling on us to enroll in his mission. He's calling on us to sign up as players in his mission to the world. And God's mission to the world is to reclaim that world to himself to reclaim this world that's turned out to be very different than what he intended for it to be. So as we've watched God act through Noah, and act through Abraham and through Joseph, and act through Moses and through Joshua and through his judges, as we've seen God work through Joshua, and we've seen him work through David and Samuel and his prophets, we've seen that God will not God will not abandon his creation. And he will not abandon the original purpose that he has for his creation. And because God has not and will not abandon his creation, we need to know that he is in the process of redeeming and reclaiming that creation to himself. And so we, so we as individuals and we as a church, we are enrolled in God's mission we're enrolled in that mission that He has to the world. And our task is to be a place where God's reclamation mission is carried out. That's what we are to do. It's carried out as we, as enrolled agents in mission, reclaim the world around us. And we reclaim the world around us with love. We reclaim it with forgiveness. We reclaim it with mercy. We reclaim it with grace. And when we live lives that show God's love and show God's forgiveness and show God's mercy and show God's grace. When we do that, we challenge the darkness that's around us and we challenge that darkness with God's light. And that's our mission. And it's our mission because it's our God's mission. So last week, we came to the end of the Old Testament. And as we ended that time in the Old Testament, we ended it looking forward to God's next act in His story looking forward to the next step in his mission to reclaim and redeem his creation. And we saw last week that the Old Testament story ends with God's story in search of a conclusion. It's a story in search of a conclusion because promises that were made by God through his prophets haven't yet been fulfilled. They haven't yet happened as the Old Testament ends. So the Old Testament ends with some questions And those questions are, where is the wonderful counselor? Where is the mighty God? Where is the everlasting? Where is that prince of peace that was promised by Isaiah? Ends with questions like, where is Messiah? Where is the anointed one? Where is the one who will come and bring God's creation back to its original purpose? And as the Old Testament ends, the answer to those questions doesn't come very quickly. At least from a human perspective, it takes a while to get those answers. So as the prophet Malachi ends his service to God, the end of his service ushers in 400 years of prophetic silence, 400 years of time when the voice of God through his prophets simply isn't heard. But even though the prophets are silent, it's a noisy time in Jewish history. There's tremendous political and cultural upheaval during that 400 years. First thing that happens is Persia, that powerful kingdom that allowed many Jews to return back to Jerusalem and allowed them to rebuild the temple. Persia is conquered and replaced by Alexander the Great and Greece as the great world power. And Alexander ushers in an aggressive agenda to Hellenize the world. This next word, I'm sure, isn't in the dictionary. It's not a real world, but he's wanting to Greekize the world. Alexander's seeking to export Greek culture and Greek language and Greek philosophy and Greek education to every corner of the world. And so then Alexander dies. Greek rule doesn't stop, but Greek rule is split the region is divided and Jerusalem is whipsawed between two competing Greek dynasties. And it's during this time that the process of translating the Old Testament into the Greek language began. And then things deteriorate and the temple is desecrated and that leads to a revolt, the Maccabean revolt. That revolt leads to the rededication of the temple and it leads to Jewish independence for a few years. We're familiar with Hanukkah. It's a festival of light that celebrates the rededication of the temple. It celebrates the triumph of light over darkness. And then Rome comes along, and Rome replaces Greece as the world power. And the Jews lived in relative peace until 63 B.C. when Rome responded to continuing civil unrest in Palestine, and they took military control of Jerusalem and the entire region. So as the New Testament opens, the Jews are dispersed. They are a dispersed nation. They're dispersed geographically. They no longer have a nation to really call their own, but they're dispersed throughout the expansive Roman kingdom. They're dispersed culturally. Rather than having a uniform Jewish culture, they reflect the culture of the regions in which they have been living. They're dispersed linguistically. They speak the languages of the people among whom they have been living. And they're also dispersed religiously. They have different sects. They have different divisions within their religions. They have widely divergent religious beliefs and opinions and practices. And that's the stage on which John the Baptist steps. John the Baptizer breaks that long prophetic silence. And he does it by calling for repentance... He calls for repentance because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's come near. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, we read this. In those days, John the baptizer, he came preaching in the desert of Judea and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Skip down a little bit to verse 11. John speaking to the people, and he says this to them. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, John, the baptizer, steps on the stage and he announces that the answers, the answers to those questions, are at hand. The answers are near. Where is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? Promised by Isaiah. John says he's near. Where is Messiah? John says he's near. Where is the anointed one? John says he's coming. Where is the one who will come and bring God's creation back to its original purpose? John says he's about to take his place on the stage. Where is God's light? Where's God's light to shine into this dark world? The Apostle John puts it this way in his gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 7. John the baptizer came as a witness to testify concerning that light, the light to come into the world, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light is coming. The light is near. It's about to take its place on the stage. Where is that light? That was John's role. His role was to come and announce that the light, the true light, God's light, is coming into the world, and it's coming into the world now. We need to understand that this is no ordinary light. This is an ancient light. It's an eternal light. It's a light that has always been and always is and always will be. And in his gospel, John highlights the magnitude of what's taking place right now. He emphasizes that Jesus' appearance on earth signals the beginning of God's decisive next step in reclaiming and redeeming his creation. And John does that in an interesting way. He does it by echoing God's creation story. And I think the reason that he echoes God's creation story is because this is the beginning of God's re creation story. Turning back to John 1 1, where we started today, it says, In the beginning, does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. When we read the Gospels, we get some kind of different pictures about what's occurring. John's Gospel and Mark's Gospel make it sound as if Jesus just kind of suddenly and miraculously appeared on the stage. But we know from the other two Gospels that the light the light that Jesus brought first appeared, first appeared as a baby some 30 years before John the baptizer started preaching. And Jesus' birth ushered in a new beginning, that new creation, the recreation of the world. And it did it by bringing I Am, by bringing God in the flesh, by bringing the creator to the earth to shine God's light, to shine God's true, unadulterated light into the dark world. And while the remarkable circumstances of Jesus' birth clearly signaled to those who were paying attention that this was no ordinary child who was being born in a manger. Really, when we think about it, an even more remarkable event occurred nine months before the birth of Jesus. Because really, the true miracle is Jesus' conception. That's the true miracle, a conception within a virgin mother a conception without a human father. And it's a miracle that really makes sense when you think about what John is saying here. It makes sense because Jesus, the one who is conceived in Mary, isn't a created being. He's not a new being. That's not what's being conceived. See, this is the word that always has been and is and always will be. It's the word becoming flesh. This is God becoming flesh. This is I am, the God of Abraham, becoming flesh. This is life itself becoming flesh. Jesus is a creator being, not a created being. He wasn't created to reflect God's light. He was sent because he is God's true light. Always has been, is now, and always will be. And that light, that true light, broke through in a way that's just impossible to ignore. It can't be ignored. God made it very clear that Jesus was bringing his light to the world. And those signs were there for people to see, for people who were willing to see. We see that when Jesus came up out of the water, after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, Matthew tells us this in chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, At that very moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The signs were there for those who were willing to see. The signs were there in his many miracles. The blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame to walk, the sick were made well, the hungry were fed. As Nicodemus said, no one could perform the miraculous signs Jesus was doing if God were not with him. The signs were there. The signs were even there in his teaching and in the brilliant light of his parables and the brilliance of his sermons. I'll borrow some language from the movie Matrix. Matrix, Jesus taught in a way that left splinters in the mind. He left splinters in the mind. He left words that continue to work and poke and fester and provoke and demand attention long after they were spoken. As a matter of fact, thousands of years after they were spoken. After one of Jesus' sermons, Matthew tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teachings Amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not like their teachers of the law. The signs were there for those who were willing to see. The signs were there when Jesus demonstrated that he had authority even over death, when he brought Lazarus back to death again, back to life again. The signs were there. The signs were there when Jesus, Jesus the Son, the Son of God, shone like the sun. Matthew 17, 1, Jesus took Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And in verse 5, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The signs were there. The signs were there. Where is Messiah? Here is Messiah. Where is the anointed one? Here is the anointed one. Where is God's true light that will bring creation back to its original purpose? Here is the true light with all those signs and with all that evidence, we have to kind of wonder, we have to ask the question, why were the very people who had been waiting for centuries for that light to appear, expectantly waiting for God's light to appear? Why were they blinded to the light? Why did they not see it? Why did they not hear it? Why did they try to snuff out that light once it appeared on earth? Well, there's probably lots of answers to to that question, but I want to give just five different answers. The first reason why I think that they tried to snuff out the light of Jesus when he appeared is because they were truly scandalized by Jesus' claims about himself. They were truly offended. These were religious people who took their own righteousness very seriously. And while their religious understanding would allow them to accept the fact that Jesus just might be from God... They were righteously indignant that he made the outrageous claim that he actually was God. Not just from God, but he was God. John 10 and verse 24, we read about this. It says, the Jews gathered around Jesus saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Why did they try to snuff out God's true light when it appeared? Because Jesus claimed to be who he, in fact, was, because he claimed to be God in the flesh. Why did they snuff out the light? Well, they were acting out of self-interest, maybe selfish interest. They were trying to protect the status quo. That's what they were trying to protect because life under Roman rule wasn't too bad. The Jews had a significant amount of religious and cultural and judicial and economic autonomy while living under Roman rule. And the primary thing that could disrupt, that could ruin that autonomy, was any kind of civil unrest. That would bring harsh reprisals from Rome, any unrest among the Jewish people. And Jesus, with his increasing popularity and his increasing influence, threatened to disrupt their comfortable lives. Why did they try to snuff out God's true light? Because Jesus made them uncomfortable. Because his presence made their future uncertain. And they tried to snuff out the light because they just didn't recognize the light. And they didn't recognize the light because he didn't fit their mold of Messiah. They were looking for Messiah. But this illegitimate carpenter's son from Nazareth, whose inner circle was made up primarily of fishermen this man who continually socialized with tax collectors and prostitutes and other people identified as sinners, this man who actively antagonized the Jewish hierarchy didn't at all fit their mold of what Messiah would look like. They were looking for a mighty royal warrior in the mold of King David to sweep in and restore Israel to its rightful place as a world power, its rightful place of dominance in the world. Jesus didn't look like their mold of Messiah. So they tried to snuff out the light because Jesus simply didn't match the picture that they envisioned. And they tried to snuff out the light because they were afraid. They were afraid, interestingly enough, of his power. They were looking for a Messiah with power, but not this kind of power. See, they were looking for a Messiah with power that would align itself with them against Rome. But that's not what they got. Instead, what they got was someone who identified with the common people. His power was with the common people, and they were afraid that he was going to align himself with the common people against them, not against Rome. Too often, Jesus' power seemed to be against the religious elite, not for them, against Rome. So they tried to snuff out the light, simply because they were afraid of Jesus. But finally, and maybe most importantly, they moved to snuff out the light because Jesus' hour had come. It was time. It was time for Jesus to die. And the reason it was time for Jesus to die was because it was time to reveal, through his death, God's true light and to reveal God's true plan to reclaim and redeem his creation. The hour had come. It was time. And the remarkable and unexpected twist in God's story at this point is that he chose to reveal the true light of Jesus Christ, not in his remarkable conception, not in his powerful miracles, not in his wonderful teachings. He chose to reveal his true light by first taking that light to the cross. He chose to reveal his light by taking it to the cross. And what a dark place that is to take the light. As we read the story, the darkness of Gethsemane and Judas's betrayal just leads to the darkness of Caiaphas' courtyard and Peter's denial. And that leads to the darkness of the sham trials and the angry crowds. And that leads to the darkness of torture and mockery. And that leads to the darkness of criminal execution on a cross. And that leads to the darkness of death. Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those waiting there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them got him a sponge. He filled it with vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. At that moment, at that moment when Jesus breathes his last and when Elijah doesn't come to the rescue, it appears that darkness has once again prevailed. It appears that darkness has won because once more God's rescuer is dead. And if God's story ends here, it ends right here, it ends the same way that the New Testament opened. The wait for Messiah continues. Darkness continues to dominate God's creation. The years of prophetic silence continue. It ends waiting for God to once more speak and once more act to reclaim and redeem his creation. And we know the story. Jesus is taken from the cross He's placed in a tomb, and I have to believe that God's creation, God's good creation, God's creation that's desperately in need of reclamation, desperately in need of redemption, I have to believe that God's creation is holding its breath. It's holding its breath, waiting to see, is this the end of Jesus' story? And creation held its breath until dawn of the first day of the week, He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. See, God's true light, his true light was revealed when Jesus left the tomb. When Jesus left the darkness of the tomb behind. And Jesus' empty tomb tells us that God's love is victorious. The empty tomb tells us that God's love for us overwhelms sin. The empty tomb tells us that God's love for us overwhelms death. His love overwhelms evil. His love overwhelms darkness. So creation can once again breathe. Breathe breathe because Jesus's mission has been accomplished. Jesus reclaimed God's good creation. He redeemed God's good creation. The empty tomb tells us that all barriers have been removed. It tells us that all penalties have been suffered, all ransoms have been paid, and those have been paid by Jesus, by God's true light. See, with Jesus' resurrection, darkness gave way forever to resurrection, to a new beginning. Darkness gave way to a new beginning where God's light, where King Jesus reigns forever. That's Jesus' story. And that's God's story. But that's also our story. Because we are a people redeemed by God. We are a people rescued by God. And we're redeemed and rescued not because we have conquered darkness, but because Jesus' light is brighter than the darkness around us, and Jesus' light is brighter than the darkness in us. So, church, my brothers and my sisters, let's live in Jesus' light, let's worship His light. And let's shine his light into the darkness around us. Because that's God's story. And that's Jesus' story. And it's our story. Jesus, the true light. Let me close by saying this. If you're here and you are overwhelmed, if you're overwhelmed by the darkness of your past, or you're overwhelmed by the darkness of your present, I want you to know that there's nothing. There is nothing in your past and there's nothing in your present. There's nothing in your past and nothing in your present that's so dark that Jesus' love can't overwhelm it with the true light of his love for you. And I want you to know he does love you. And I want you to know that he wants to wash you in his light and he wants to bring you out of your darkness. Because he loves you. So if you're here this morning and you're searching for that light, you're searching for the light that overwhelms any darkness around you and any darkness in you, won't you let us know that you are searching for that light because we want to help you find that light. We want to help you find the light that brought us out of our darkness into the light of Jesus and into life with Jesus. So if that describes you, if you're here this morning, won't you reach for the light? We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song together. You can walk to the front and you can let us know that you're searching for that light, that you want to reach for Jesus' light. If you're more comfortable in doing that in a more private setting, you can make your way to the back and you can ask for directions to room 104. There'll be a couple of our elders, a couple of godly men, a couple of men who would love to talk to you about Jesus' light. They will be there. So you can make your way to the back and do that as we sing this song. But whatever your needs are, won't you let us know this morning while we stand up, while we sing this song together.